This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach, heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and today I'm joined by a woman who exemplifies everything about this show. Her name is Phyllis Taylor, and she is the author of an incredibly powerful new book called The Prison Lady. Her story is powerful, compelling, and inspiring, especially for our audience. What a great example that dreams have no expiration date and how important it is to keep striving for your purpose on this planet. It's like what Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar said, you can have a job, you can have a career, or you can have a calling. And I think that Phyllis Taylor finally found her calling. I can't wait for you to meet her, but first let me tell you a little bit more about Phyllis Taylor. For 20 years, Phyllis was teaching technology at an international law firm determined to make lawyers shine. In fact, she worked for this company for over 30 years. All grown up and driven to enhance her own education, Phyllis attended Ryerson University to study journalism, where I went to school as well, George Brown College to study adult education and counseling, and the University of Toronto to study philosophy, thus deepening her reflections on life. A decade ago, Phyllis overcame her teaching addiction to embrace her speaking addiction, where competitive public speaking performances won her numerous awards. Recently, Phyllis authored The Prison Lady, a memoir of her journey alongside prisoners. When Phyllis isn't speaking, writing, or attending courses, she can be found counseling others in her capacity as a certified life and mediation coach. Phyllis says her ultimate professional pride is in her position with the Ministry of Ontario, where she delivers motivational pieces, and she's even won awards for her dedication innovation and inspirational work with prisoners. Loving and respecting marginalized people while guiding them on their healing journey is what Phyllis calls making her dream a reality. Phyllis Taylor, welcome to Find Your Bliss and congratulations on your phenomenal book. Thank you so much, Judy. I can't tell you how excited I am to be with you today. And moreover, I'm honored to be with you. So thank you. Thank you so much. Same. Phyllis, after 30 years of working at an international law firm in Toronto, you were let go, terminated after a 30-year position, and you were in your early 60s and not at all ready to retire. But as fate would have it, your friends brought you to hear Oprah Winfrey speak in Toronto in 2012 at Oprah's Life Class, and six female inmates were Skyped into that show from Indiana. And these women described their life in prison and the fears of returning to live on the outside with very little if no guidelines needed to make that successful transition. In other words, they wanted to know how not to end up back in the prison system. You evidently slapped your knee and had what I think Oprah would call an aha moment. The light went on and you knew that you were headed to work and volunteer in prisons. Something was sparked in you. You knew this was your calling. What was it about those six women, these female prisoners, that gave you your aha moment? So my beginning was very humble. I was brought up in an Orthodox Jewish home. I had an Orthodox Jewish dad and I had a very Reformed 
Jewish mom. And I like to say that while my father was home doveny, my mother was sneaking us out the back door for bacon and eggs, <laughs> extra bacon, extra crispy. And so I would be severely, severely punished for telling a white lie or not getting an A on a report card or, or any exam or test. And at one point, I was caught sneaking out the bedroom window to hitchhike down to Yorkville and go-go dance. The consequence of that little disruption in my life was I was locked away for a year. Now, I can't tell you with certainty that that's the reason why I have such a compassion for the marginalized and disenfranchised people, but I really do think that I can empathize with them because I myself was locked up for a year. So when I heard T.D. Jakes, as you described, speaking at the Oprah Winfrey Life class, and there were six women Skyped in from the Indiana Penitentiary, they were Skyped in on the back wall behind Oprah and her guests speaking, and when I saw the light bulbs go off for them when T.D. Jakes was speaking, I literally did, as you say, I slapped my knee, I lunged out of my seat, and I thought, holy, that's what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And I had no idea at that time, Judy, what exactly I was going to do. I was going to take everything I had and every skill I had and everything that I knew and just help them. I've it's come incredible. a long way since then. It's incredible. What what an instinct. And I have to just go back to that story about you being locked in your basement because your writing is so evocative. I have to tell everyone, first of all, the book is funny. And the book also made me cry many times, Good. like really cry and cringe and laugh and all the things. And the chapter where you describe how you were beaten and locked up in your parents' home for one year in the basement, that they had boarded up the windows and barbed wire after you were caught crawling out of that basement, as you've just described, at age 15, wearing the go-go boots and the crop yep. top and the mini skirt. And you were going to see your boyfriend who was 15 and was a DJ in the very cool hippy dippy Yorkville at the time. And he was a DJ at a club down there. Is that right? So it's, there's two segments to my go-go dancing career, if you will. <laughs> yes. The first segment was, you're correct. I had a, a boyfriend when I was 14 slash 15, who was a DJ and significantly, he's still a DJ. And <laughs> I, cre I creeped him on Facebook. And uh, he had me go-go dancing on a stage. And then I thought, enterprising somewhat, I thought, you know what, I got to take this thing somewhere and make a bit of money because I needed like new lipstick and new makeup at that age. So I decided to take my show on the road solo. This had wow. nothing to do with him at that point. I crawled out the basement window. I hitchhiked down to Yorkville, and I got myself a job on stage dancing in Boris's discotheque. Oh, gosh. And your neighbor, a young 15-year-old boy as well, who maybe was in love with you, we don't know, but there was must have been some reason, he ratted on you. And you came home to see the whites of your parents' eyes That's waiting right. for you in that basement apartment. The way you tell it, it's, it's just, it's so compelling, and it's such a page-turner, and you can just, you, you feel like you're there. What was that like for you? Did you get scared when your parents kind of said, that's it, no more fun, no going out, you can't go anywhere, you're being boarded up? Like, it's kind of scary. It's frightening. What was, what was very frightening was, you know, I can add humor to anything or not. But as I was crawling back in the basement window, I had one leg in resting on the bedroom countertop. Mm -hmm. And I see my parents are sitting there in the dark. And they almost do, were doing nothing together at that point. So it was almost shocking even to see them in unity. 
So yes. here they are sitting in the dark, pitch dark, and all I see is the whites of their eyes. And in that moment, it's like my entire life flashed in front of me. And I do remember that moment. And I thought, well, look, you know, girlfriend, you've got two choices. You're either going to take that leg out and run like hell, or you're going to put it in and face the music. And I thought, where am I running to? I mean, I have nowhere to go. We yeah. were actually estranged from our family. So I did wow. not even think I could run to an aunt or a cousin. I didn't have them. Mm -hmm. I didn't have family back then. I do now. I do now. But that's another story. And yes, it was frightening. What got you through that year? I'm just wondering about that too. And I know there's so much to cover, but I found this fascinating that you went through this. So I, I know right away you understood the prisoners because you felt like a prisoner in your own home. But yes. what do you think got you through that year? Look, I, I think about the, the, the inmate you talk about who saw a sliver of the sun, oh, of, of the yeah. sky. And you write about that in such a compelling way. And you realize she's so grateful for that one little thing that most yes. of us completely take for granted with yes. windows. What was yeah. your thing that helped you during that year get through that and survive it? So I was locked into the bedroom and my meals were slipped into the bedroom as well. Just to be clear, I was taken, I was escorted to school by my mom who had just learned to drive. And if you recall, that of itself was a, a nightmare because my mother was never a solid driver. She had learned to drive well into her 40s and I. she oh, was assigned God to taking me back and forth to school. Okay, <laughs> oh, be dear. that as it may, when I was at home, which was, you know, every night right after school and, and all weekend long, no TV, no typewriter, no telephone. But because my dad was all about learning, which actually I am too, even to this day, learning on a continuum, I was mm. given books. And I think I would have to, to answer your question, which is a great question. I really believe those books got me through it. I didn't have much choice in what books I was given. And they were all study type of books and learning kind of books. And the Odd Reader's Digest. <laughs> wow. That that's just that's really incredible. And you did parlay it. My God, I don't I don't even think people realize how much so and we'll get to it. But now here you are, you're at the Oprah show. You've left this 30-year career in the in, in the law profession. And now you decide you want to do this. You don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but maybe yeah. utilizing your life coaching and mediation skills and your years of public speaking, which we'll get to in a minute, and this motivational speaking, which you told them you did, but you didn't even really do at the time, but you, boy, did you figure it out. You tried to reach out to prisons, to as many prisons that were in a 20 kilometer radius of where you That's lived. Right. And at first, many of them said no to you. And finally, you received a call from Lori Shank, who was the volunteer services and educational director at a local prison. And you actually turned this into something, is something from nothing, like you didn't have a thing. You took the opportunity, you ran with it. Can you tell us what happened? So I have a very strong belief in Bisher. I mean, there's just a few things that are left over from my childhood. And I didn't leave a 30-year career. I was fired. And, and, and that was not only heartbreaking, but also humiliating. And when I decided that I was going to do, I had been, I had been competitively speaking, but not motivational speaking, certainly not professionally. And I, you know, I had my awakening and here I go. So I called every prison, as you say. And when I got a call back from Lori Shank at Metro East Detention Center, I don't mind naming it, she was willing to give me a chance for an interview, either that, or she just wanted to get me off the phone. So she did give me an interview time and date for the following Monday at one o'clock. And she said, come dressed, ready for the prison interview. I will remember her words forever. 
so I came dressed like sort of as if I was teaching a classroom of lawyers, which I was used to doing. Obviously, I may have been a bit overdressed. But the interesting thing is I put a note up on my Facebook social media page saying, oh, my God, it's like, pinch me. I've got an interview. I'm going to prison. And this is the beshared part. Not the gal who terminated me, but my former director to whom I reported for the better part of the 20 years in my teaching career at the law firm saw this note and just sent me a private message and said, is that prison by any chance? Because I didn't name the prison Metro Mm -hmm. East. I mean, with all the prisons in Ontario, she recognized the possibility. And she said, I wrote her back immediately. I said, yes, it is. And it was so odd that it was a coincidence like that. And she said, well, you know what? I have a connection to prisons because she was now working for Durham College and she was placing security guards in the prisons or correctional officers, if you will. So she said, do you want me to put in a good word for you? And of course I answered, well, does a pregnant woman want to give birth? Yeah. <laughs> By the time I reached that prison, Lori Shank said, come on in. I know what you were going to do with your program. And I'm thinking, program? What program? <laughs> At that point. But, uh, you know, you do what you have to do. When you, when you have, a, you call it a, a calling. And yes, I agree with that terminology. But I am passionate, absolutely passionate about everything I do in life. And when that opportunity presented and I was given this chance in a million, I feel I was going to make it work no matter how many hours it took or what I had to do. I so get that. I just want to also just interject for our listeners who may not know the word Bashert. It means meant to be. It's a Yiddish term that means meant to be. So this was meant to be. This was your, this was sort of your you're I'm trying my to give another word. Intervention, Your divine, divine intervention, intervention. Judy. <laughs> yes, yes. I just, I just love it. And my entire life has been beshared. Everything has been divine intervention. That's so cool. So your first gig after this was at the, the Metro East Detention Center. And so this is after this first experience. And you saw four men all wearing orange garb in handcuffs and shackles, yes, hands shackled, feet shackled, being pushed roughly by two delivery guards up against the wall. And even though you were a little unnerved, you say you were ready and motivated. Like a lot of people would shy away from this. <laughs> you sort of went guns a-blazing and you really seem to know how to dance in the moment. There's a great story of that there's five of you at this first meeting, this first interaction, and only four chairs. And so you decided to dance in the moment and play a game of musical chairs. What are your yes. memories of that day and that experience with those guys? So just to be clear, there is a difference between prison and detention center. Although some prisons have a detention uh, unit, but the Metro East Detention Center is housing men who have been convicted but not yet sentenced. And right. so they are extremely nervous, uneasy. And I was asked to come in and teach anger management. And if you remember from the book, I said, you know, what do I know about anger? I don't know that much about anger except an ugly, angry dad. And that never got better. So, but here I am tasked with teaching anger management and that I did. And I say, and I remember to this moment that they were so respectful of me and they were so kind and they were playing musical chairs as directed. I was going to remain seated and that left three chairs for four men. And after 20 minutes, they would get up and motion to the next guy politely (laughs) on instruction. You're going to sit over it. And that's what happened. So what I remember from that prison experience, and it was brief because I stayed there probably two months until Mm -hmm. we realized 
this really, the knowledge is really not transferring that well. So now what happens is, as I say in the book, the musical chairs went well, the anger management, not so much. And that was kind of the winding down of that prison and the starting up of the next prison. Of the next prison. And that, so that was the very big gig for you, which was the Vanier Center for Women located in Milton, Ontario, which houses 125 prisoners. Vanier is a maximum security prison. What happened when you first walked into that prison? And can you tell us what happened in your first talk with 100 prisoners on positive thinking? So, yes, I was asked to come in and speak to a uh, 100 women about positive thinking. And what had happened was <laughs> when I reached the parking lot, I was so excited with myself that I had actually found my way to Milton that I rushed out of the car. I'm on my way to the control desk to get into the prison and deliver my piece and realized I had locked my keys in the car and was hysterical. I was having a meltdown moment all by myself, really privately. And then I thought, oh, hold on a second here. You are about to teach positive thinking. We're just going to take a couple of deep breaths. We're going to do a brief meditation here. And then we're going to figure out what to do. And after I did that, I literally walked backwards to the car to realize that my keys were in my pocket. So when I delivered the piece in the prison, one of the women asked a question. I don't recall what it was, but it allowed me to tell my story, to tell my story of meltdown. And the more stories you can tell that are personal, they love it. And especially if you're flawed, which I am. And so I told them the story about having my little parking lot meltdown. One woman then said, why was I not told this stuff when I was growing up? I just wish I had a Phyllis then. At which point, 100 women stood and applauded. And Judy, mm-hmm. I had cheerleaders. Yeah, That's how I did. began in that prison. And one of them was Destiny. Her name was, was Destiny. Destiny. Not just Destiny as, as a concept, but you actually made a friend who helped yes. you. Yes. And, and I love the story when you tell how she said, I'm your friend in this prison, Phyllis. But when I get out of here, you don't want to know from me because yeah. I don't know what I'm going to be up to and who I'm going to be surrounded by and what drugs I might be taking or not taking. And oh. you don't want to go near me because I'm not safe when I'm outside. Can you tell us more yeah. about Destiny? So in every prison, I was assigned or am assigned an assistant, which is the best thing. They helped me to set up my equipment, my projector, my slides. I write a handout for every lesson I deliver. I write a booklet. Thank God for journalism. I write these booklets and I deliver them to the ladies, of course, sans staple, without staples. Yes. Right. So Destiny was assigned to be my cheerleader slash assistant at the Vanier Correctional Institute for Women in Milton. And she also became my friend because it's really hard for me not to make friends. I have a problem with that. And so she became my friend in that particular prison. When she was leaving, two years hence, she said, can we go and speak somewhere privately, Phyllis? I have something I need to tell you. And I thought, that's great. She drags me to the laundry room. This is what she considers privacy. And, you know, the women are running back and forth with their laundry and they're chatting, whatever. We're having privacy. And she says to me, Phyllis, I just have to tell you something. I am leaving here in a couple of weeks, but I need to warn you that when you see us, any of us on the outside, including me, do not approach You love everyone. You think that everybody is so wonderful and you trust everyone. I need to tell you not to because we are all clean and sober in here and well-behaved and there are guards around. But when we get out, you don't know who's on drugs and who's not. Don't Mm. even trust me. Walk away. 
How did that make you feel when she said that? Because you had you had developed a relationship with her. It made me feel loved. Because if you think about it, she was acting as if my daughter would. My daughter would say to me, Mom, you got to be careful about these prisoners. I hope you're not making friends with them. No, okay, Mel, I, I promise not to make too many friends. So I felt, I felt loved and I felt respected and I felt all the warmth and goodness that you could ever ask for in a lifetime. That's how I felt. That's how I always wow. felt. Wow. It's so fascinating. I, I want to go back for a second to the staples and I want you to explain why you weren't allowed to put staples in your handouts, but also the fact that you were able to put together a handout, almost like a little booklet every week on things like anger management, positive thinking, gratitude, just to name a few. Yes. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. How did you, that would take some people a year to do what a booklet. You did it every week and then came and presented it. And so can you tell us about that and also about why no staples? Don't answer that just yet. We're going to go on a short commercial break. More with the prison lady, Phyllis Taylor, when we come back, back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And before the break, I was asking you, Phyllis, about how you were able to assemble these wonderful booklets and do it all with no staples and hand them out to everyone to accompany your talks in prison. So to begin with the no staples things, anything in prison can be used as a weapon. So this is not about the staples, but I'll get to the staples, I promise you. So if it's a broken tile, if it's... um. Uh, a toothbrush, if it's, there's just everything is seen as a potential weapon. A staple, however, is not a weapon, but the reason they don't allow staples in the handouts is because they use them, they gather up. Now, I don't know what they're using. I don't know if it's tea bags or what the heck they're using, but they create this black dye. They take the staples and they create tattoos from the staples, which mm -hmm. end up being infected. So that's why no staples are allowed in my handouts. They just do a fold down of the corner and you're quite right. I was preparing a handout, which was anywhere from 15 to 30 pages per week. Mm. They're not as edited as my book is, actually, but they were pretty decent. And uh, I was working like a dog the first year to get these handouts prepared so that I could have a different one to go with every topic. Wow. 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 And uh, yeah, no, I found that fascinating as well. How did you go from public speaking, and you did it, you almost did it competitively. You were a debater, yes, public did. speaker growing up, which is wonderful training. But you basically turn that, you transform that into motivational speaking, which is a real art. That's a very different kind of thing. What happened? How were you able to transform it? Because I, I can just tell from talking to you that you're an amazing motivational speaker, oh. but you had to go from point A to point B. What was involved in that trajectory of you going from regular public speaking, debating to motivating all of these people? 
So it just seems like such a nat. I've never stopped talking, Judy. So mm. it just seems like quite a natural transition in that as as a youth, and from the time I could reach the kitchen table, maybe the table was a bit high. I was. <laughs> It was mandatory, and I was mandated by my dad to memorize stories in the Reader's Digest, twist them up a little bit in my own words, regurgitate them, and go into public speaking contests all the time. When I was working in the law firm, there was probably about 15 years where I really was not doing competitive or motivational speaking or any kind of professional or competitive speaking. However, when I received my promotion from paralegal to training professional, I was teaching technology, I'm running classrooms. I'm running classrooms of lawyers. So here I am speaking again. My former law firm allowed me approximately $5,000 a year for education. It was an educational fund. And Mm -hmm. when I ran out of taking courses, my then director, the gal who got me into my first prison said, I've got something for you. Why don't you become a Toastmaster? And why don't you do competitive public speaking? And I looked at her and I said, you really want me to talk more? (laughs) And we laughed. And then she said, no, I think I want you to be a competitive speaker. Not because it's going to make you better at your job, because you're going to love it. And she was really kind to me like that in all ways. And uh, I thought, well, I'll try. I, I may as well try. Uh, $5,000. It certainly didn't cost $5,000. I was, I was doing um, a club at uh, Bay and Front in the Royal Bank Plaza. And you know mm-hmm. what? I think I won. I don't know if I should say this, but I think I won my very first contest and it just, it just kept going. And I, I kept, you know, you start at the club level and then you graduate to the region level, and then you graduate to the country wow. level, province level. Yeah. So I was doing pretty significant uh, competitive speaking. And then it was, that when I lost my job and two months later found myself at the Oprah Winfrey Fest that I thought, well, hey, if I can be a competitive public speaker, I can be a motivational speaker because I was doing that anyways at at the coffee table with the girls. Wow. Wow. And and yet it almost seems, it's so interesting because when it comes to, like I help people as a life coach find their bliss and their purpose and their enlightenment. And it's when all the threads come together. So this is so clear to me now that, you know, you're, you're a life coach, you're a mediation coach, you're a speaker, you're a motivational speaker, you know how to plan programs and you put all this together and really created this perfect, perfect gig for yourself. I have to say some of the stories in the book are shocking, devastating, oftentimes very emotional, but always very authentic. Some of the prisoners became your confidants, almost like friends. You became very proud of them. You've actually seen individuals turn their lives around, like in the case of Manuel Ferreira in the Kingston Penitentiary. Can you tell us about Manuel? That's Manny Cordero. I call him Manny Ferreira in the book, but his name is Manny Cordero. And I just adore this man. So Manny had spent 20 years in the Kingston Penitentiary by two 10-year sentences. So that's 20 years, twice for 10 years. He was actually housed between Paul Bernardo and David Milgard. And then he is in in segregation, housed by these two guys. And I remember him saying to me, I kind of didn't have any use for Paul Bernardo, but David Milgard, he was better. And I thought, you know, after the fact, well, I guess Manny's a pretty good judge of character. Yes. So Manny did, he was my, he was my assistant in the Ontario Correctional Institute, which is was then situated in Brampton. And uh, we became confidants from the moment we met. Manny Mm -hmm. had decided 
that he was going to be my friend before he met me. And that is quite monumental in and of itself. So he met me at the control desk, escorted me into the auditorium where I was going to be speaking on my first, my very first attendance there, set up my computer, set up the chairs and prepared the handouts and took the attendance. At the end of my session, at the end of my session, he sits down, he get, it had taken a seat front row center in front of me to watch me speak. And then after the session, he says, does all the cleanup and everything else. And I, I'm hanging around. I'm not in any rush to leave. I never am. I just want to milk this thing, this opportunity of just being inside the prison. So I'm never in a rush to leave. And he sits down after we tidied up and everything that we needed to do. He sat down and he said to me, so I understand you're a Toastmaster. And I said, yes, I am, Manny. Why do you ask? He said, because I am too. And therein lies a skill because this guy knew how to connect with me. He had the personality and persona to know how to connect with uh, with whoever I was going to be. He found it. And then from there, we became friendly. I would confide in him. I was leaving my husband at that time. That's a whole other long story, obviously, included in the book. But he became my confidant. It's really safe in prison because my story can't go anywhere. I can tell him right. anything I want, and I know that it's confidential <laughs> and it's not going into my community, not at least not any time fast. When Manny was leaving the prison, both of us felt we had become friends. There is just no other definition of what our relationship was other than friendship. friendship. And we both felt, oh my God, we don't want this to come to an end. So I actually said to Manny, you know what? It, it's not going to end. It doesn't have to end. I'm a rule breaker and I, I'm already <laughs> talking about it very openly and I may never be allowed back into prison, but here goes. I said to Manny, let's keep in touch. That's okay. I'm I'm busy now with my book and all. So I, um, I said to Manny, let's keep him in touch. And yes. I opened up a separate email account just for him. So that wow. if things didn't work out well, I had an avenue that I could collapse. But I had really, Judy, no doubt that we were going to have a lovely relationship. But I wow. needed to, to learn about him on the outside for a while before I took the next step. So after communicating with Manny for a couple of months, I then decided that I hadn't had enough of Manny and I asked him to meet me for coffee. I asked him wow. to meet me for coffee. And wow. what I would do, it evolved into a once a week, and on my way home from the prison in Brampton, I would meet Manny for coffee. And honestly, I was safer in prison than I was in his neighborhood having coffee. Yes, yes. You told so, me, you wrote that, you told me that. You told us that in the book. It's, <laughs> it, it's, <laughs> I can't it's always so remember every word that I write in the book versus what I tell, tell others. So I, I met Manny for coffee on the way home from prison every Monday evening. And he would insist on buying coffee. And I thought, you know, you're out of work. I should probably be buying you the coffee. But no, I needed to let uh -huh. him have his dignity. So I would meet him every every Monday on the way home until I finally said to him, you know, Manny, I think I'd like to meet your wife. I think you should come with her from now on. So I would start meeting both of them, Angie and Manny, on my way wow. home from the prison. And I hate to tell him, but I was life coaching them. So I actually had, it wasn't just friendship for me. I had kind of a higher goal. I was trying to life coach him into all kinds of different areas. Well, as it turns out, now this is, I am not taking any credit for this whatsoever, but as it turns out, and I don't want to give away the whole farm, Manny has developed an amazing career 
yes. not because of me, in spite of me, where he got his driver's license, he start, he opened up a business, and yes. I, I need people to find out by reading what this is because yes, it's just so, yes. so beautiful. It's so beautiful and so We're inspiring, and I agree with you. It, it's just, I, I love that story in the book. It's just, it's, it's really what it's all about, and you're doing it. I also have a question. You would walk into the prison. You'd have to put your cell phone in a locker, your computer, all anything that you had. So you had you were walking in just you, just your person, nothing else. Is that correct? So we had a choice. We could either take. We have to go in dark, go in dark, which means no purse, no cell phone, no n- <laughs> nothing at all. I was allowed to bring in my computer equipment, but I'm not allowed to bring in my personal license. So you're going dark. So you can either lock it into your car or you can lock it into a, a locker. I uh-huh. am in a room in that particular prison that I just spoke with you about. I'm in a room at the height of my attendance, which I'm very proud of. I had the highest mm-hmm. attendance in all of Ontario, a hundred men. I am in a wow. room with a hundred men and there are no guards in there with me. It is just me and the guys. The door is closed. The guards are on the outside and they're just kind of making the rounds, but it's me and my guys. And I just, I just love it. And you were never afraid. I find that fascinating. And, and no one ever really bothered you except once. Once. Somebody lunged at you once. But what I love in the book is how you talk about five people coming to your rescue. Three Um, held the guy down, two went to get guards, right? And and protected you. Yes, that was uh, Hudson. He was a very young, new inmate. And Mm -hmm. he didn't know the ropes. He didn't know my personality or my popularity. And he was going to be Hudson. And Mm -hmm. he would not join what I call the circle. It doesn't matter how many men I have in the room. I call it the circle. And I have, I have some guidelines, but one hard rule. And that is, I am not going to begin to speak. I'm not going to start my lesson until I see everyone in the circle. And I want to see the whites of everyone's eyes. No one's going to sit behind me. Everyone's going to sit in front of me. We're going to have a fireside chat. But you're going to sit. So he's up against the wall and he's leaning back like he's in a saloon. So I walked over to him and I'm all about the respect. I walked over to him and I said, may I have your name, please? He simply grunted. He didn't answer me. So I walked away. I thought, okay, give him time. And I needed time. I needed to think about how I was going to handle it. So I gave him a couple of minutes. I walked back and everybody's waiting and it's awkward. So I walked mm-hmm. back to the back of the room again. He's still, you know, saloon style back on his, on the two feet <laughs> of the chair. And I'm nervous that he could hurt himself. Uh, this young boy could knock his head on the wall or slip off. The ch- I mean, who knows? I'm not a, yeah. you know, a medic. So mm-hmm. uh, when I walked over to him the second time to request that he bring his chair and come into the circle, he lunged out of his chair and threw it at the wall. I don't think he particularly meant to hurt me, but the chair reverberated back at me, at which point 10 men kicked in. Five of them picked him up, physically picked him up as if, you know, have you ever seen the the carrying of a coffin, that, that style, mm. and carried him out into the hallway to find a guard. Five mm. other men addressed me and escorted me to a chair to calm me down. One took a chair in front of me and said, are you okay? How are you doing? How are you feeling? Wow. I am shaken. I was shaken. But notwithstanding, honestly, I have never been afraid in the prison system and or never felt I had reason to be. So this is my question. Explain the fearlessness because most people would be. What was going on for you that you were just 
not feeling the fear. I know the guards are there, but still. Yep. So no one's asked me that question except myself. Why was I never, I mean, I, I was, I've been asked why I wasn't afraid, but I've not been asked why was, were you not afraid? And so here's the thing. I feel that if you're a mom, this is how I, I've, I've rationalized it for myself. If you're a mom mm-hmm. and you see your kid darting across the street, are you going to think about what the consequences to yourself? Are you going to reach out, grab that kid and, and drag them back? So I liken my feelings and my passion for these people and for my opportunity in there to make a difference in their lives to the passion I have for my kids and by extension, my grandkids, that if I had to do anything to save them, I'm going to do it. And I'm exactly the same way in the prison. And I think that's why I never felt fear. And to quote one of my men, and I will never forget, it was one of my proudest moments from the back of the room. I was telling them that, gee, I wish I had an answer for you. It was one of those those moments. Mm-hmm. And the man from the back of the room stood up and said, Phyllis, we in this room all know that if you could make a difference in just one of our lives, you would crawl across the floor to do it. Wow. Wow. There's no fear involved What an here. acknowledgement. What an acknowledgement. My goodness. Like that must have landed in such a deep place. To oh get my an God. Acknowledgement it like never that. gotten, it's, it was my finest moment. It was one of my finest moments. I've never gotten over that. Unbelievable. Not all of the stories had successful endings. There was a beautiful man in one of the prisons that had a very tragic story who you desperately tried to save. Yeah. And I think I'm remembering the story correctly. I believe he was very handsome and he had everything yes. going for him. And and ultimately you were not able to save him. He took his own life. Can you tell us what happened? That was a, that was a terrible story. Before we hear Phyllis's story, we're going to go on a short commercial break. We'll be right back, back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And just before the break, Phyllis, I was asking you about a moment when you weren't able to help an inmate. Can you tell us more? So you're talking about Cowboy Gord, and I don't remember his full name other than Cowboy Gord. And he just, it was like he rode into that classroom on a white horse one day and sat himself in the back row. And all I could think was, oh my God, you are gorgeous. I'm already with my partner. And, but it, you know, when you see somebody who's just that good looking and tall and handsome and, but he didn't speak to me. He didn't contribute. He didn't, make his way through the classroom except to sit there. But I noted that he came back every week. So obviously he had an agenda and it had to be positive. One day I said something about having worked in Maplehurst, which was a, is another prison, a very hardcore prison. And so yes. he stands up at the back of the room. He says, you worked at Maplehurst? As if 
you're, you know, you're just too, too, whatever, whatever it was he was thinking to or not. I said, yes, I did. Why do you ask? And he said, well, I just don't see what Maplehurst. And I said, can you stay behind the class? I need to get to know you. And I'm thinking, whoa, girl, <laughs> you know, uh, for whatever reason, we were going to have a, a relationship, a, a friendship or a counseling of sorts. He did stay behind. We did become friends. He did leave the prison. And after he left the prison on a Tuesday, I returned to prison the following Monday. And one of the inmates pulled me aside because they knew that, you know, everybody knows me and who I'm friendly with and who I stay behind with because I was doing life coaching. After a two-hour session, I would do an hour to two hours life coaching with an individual wow. or small group. And so wow. this Gord was one of my guys that would stay behind routinely if he could get a private audience with me. Hmm. So one guy, when I come in the following week, pulls me aside and says, got really bad news for you. And I'm thinking, what can be bad news in a prison? Like how much worse does it get? He said, um, Gord has passed. And I, I can remember I almost collapsed on the wall. And I said, I was, it was outside the wall. I think we were waiting, we were waiting for a guard to come and open the, unlock the door and let us in because all the rooms are, are, uh, remain locked until they're in use. And so I said, passed. It's like one of those pieces of information that you can't process, but you know what's being said to you, the loss of someone that you care about. Terrible. And I said, my God, what happened? He said, we really don't have details. We, mm. I think he overdosed accidentally, but I have no way of knowing that. It's, it's just brutal. It's brutal. Another one of the most poignant stories in the book is in the chapter called One Hand, Two Hearts, where you tell the story of Fariba, a young Iranian woman, and how she had to type with one hand because her second hand had suffered a disfiguring injury. And in place of her hand was a prominent silver hook. She had lost her hand in Iran during a mass protest against tyranny. And she needed to get at least 60 words per minute as a typist in her typing test in order to pass. And you were agonized because you had to be ethical and honest and judge her. And all she was getting was 40 at best, 41 minutes, if I, if I remember correctly. Can you tell us in the end what happened? Because she only had 40 words per minute on her test, but something happened to really change her life. Fariba came into my classroom, young, vibrant, beautiful, and passionate about taking the course and succeeding because she wanted to show her family that they had come to Canada and that she could make something of herself. But they put her into my class. Here I am teaching. Uh, this is during my 30-year career with the law firm. I had a two-year out where I was teaching a paralegal course. In fact, my daughter was in my class. And they put her in my class with an inability to pass the typing requirement. She needed to get 60 words a minute and it was impossible for her to reach more than 40 words a minute. And she was working herself to death with the one hand trying to get. So I went to the, to the president of the college and I explained that she needed to be put in another course where she could succeed. Mm -hmm. And he kind of looked at me in as if, what are you talking about? we're going to leave her where she is and you're going to make it work. And I said, I'm not able to pass her. She is. Un so she pleaded with me. She pleaded with me to pass her. And I said, I can't do it. I can't do it ethically. I can't do it legally. I'm not allowed to pass you unless you get the, the required score. She comes in the next week and she says, 
Miss Phyllis, can I take you out for coffee? I'm thinking, oh boy, I'm ready for a good cry. <laughs> and cry I did with her. So she starts telling me about her life in, in Iran and how she lost her hand in protest, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, my heart's breaking because I have this really big stretchy heart and everybody knows it. So she's begging me to pass her. I walked away saying to her, I really am not sure what I'm going to do, but Judy, I did the right thing. I did the mm -hmm. only thing I could do. I passed her. Yeah. I'm pretty sure the president of the college knew all along what I was going to do because he knew me <laughs> kind of well. Everybody knows me kind of well. Yeah. I'm an open book. And yeah. I have lived to be very proud of this gal. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm looking for her. I actually wish that I had stayed in contact with her. And I go everywhere. I, I went to get my car detailed the other day and I heard somebody speaking Iranian. And I thought, and I said to her, I'm looking for a girl with one hook. Do you know who I meet? I'm talking to a stranger. <laughs> so she thought I was, she thought I was scary and she left. <laughs> she, she, but um, I am looking for her because I'd love to make contact with this gal and see where she's wow. at today because wow. She ended up graduating and getting a job as a paralegal working yeah. alongside a criminal lawyer where she didn't have to type very Unbelievable. little. Unbelievable. There's so much in the book and we're not able to get to it all, which is why I have to tell you all that you have to get The Prison Lady. It's called The Prison Lady, True Stories and Life Lessons from Both Sides of the Bar. The stories are unbelievable. But again, there's also relationship lessons in this book through your mm -hmm. own stories of your yeah. two marriages and your engagement and almost a marriage, that story. And you finally did find the love of your life. Can you just tell us briefly about John? You're making me blush. So <laughs> John and I met on a, a dating app. I had left my husband. If you recall from the book, Judy, I left my husband because of an outcome that I affected with a woman in prison, a young girl in prison. I was working with her and she was ashamed to leave her marriage. I went home, asked my husband for a divorce. But mm -hmm. I decided because with all of my dedication to whatever it is I'm doing, I am going to find a partner. And I gave myself a year. 11 months later, I met John. And, you know, a relationship ensued. We're together eight and a half years and it's wow. bliss, Judy. It's bliss. Wow. I love that. that you've got to all read about that too, because that's unbelievable. I also like that you talk about how a huge part of healing happens with vulnerability. And you describe much like Brene Brown speaks about that your take on vulnerability and its importance in healing. Can you say more about why vulnerability is so important to move you forward? Vulnerability makes the world go round. If I'm speaking with you, if I'm speaking with my partner, if I'm speaking with a group of girls at the lunch table, or I'm speaking with a, an audience of 500 people, opening up, being genuine, being real, talking about my flaws and my weaknesses and, and what I've been through and my struggles allows others to listen with heart, yeah. share with me, bond with me, connect with me, and it promotes love. And I believe this with all my heart and I will go through life forever being just authentic because really that's all I know how to do, but it really works it because works. It, it, it is, it is such a beautiful mechanism. What, what a yes, great Brene message Brown. for people. What a great message. There's a chapter in the book that I thought really typified why a lot of people end up in prison and the chapter is called, I smash his head. And it's a great story that takes place in the Maplehurst Correctional Institute. Can you just tell us briefly about Tony and the story, I Smash His Head? So Maplehurst is a very hardcore 
prison. It is maximum security and it's called the Hearst because it's the kind of prison that if they don't like what you're doing, they'll hold your head down in the toilet until you're gone and they walk away and they say it's potty training and they lose, mm-hmm. you lose a life that way. So I am commissioned there at that prison to teach anger management. And I meet with Tony. Tony was in uh, prison because he had smashed a man's head on the wall. And when he sauntered into my class on week three of eight, on week three of eight, he said to me, you know, ma'am, I like you and all, but um, I'm an angry man and I'm never going to change. And like, I'm, I'm sorry, it is what it is. And I, I asked him to give me an example of what, what exactly he was talking about. And he said, well, you know, and he told me the story of how he, he was an, he's got an auto mechanic shop and one of his uh, apprentices disobeyed him. He came back, found out he had been disobeyed and smashed his head on the wall and ended up in prison. So I said to Tony, well, let me ask you something. And this is all like, I, I'm not knowing exactly what to say or do, but I got to come up with something. I got to get through to this guy that you've got another choice. So I said to him, well, you know what, Tony, I got to ask you something. Same scenario, but what if it, your apprentice was your mom? Are you going to beat him? Are you going to smash his head on the wall? And he says, oh, no, no, ma'am. I love my mom. I said, fair enough. What if it was me? No, I like you. I'm not going to smash your head on. The-. And I said, Tony, my God, you have just taught all of us about anger management. You have taught us. And I'm like, oh, my God, building this up. So, that we have a choice. You prove to all of us, Tony, you have taught us that when we are angry, we have a nanosecond between the anger and acting out. We mm-hmm. can make a choice. Yeah. We don't have to yes. have an action that leads out to a, an imprisonment and an outcome that's detrimental to our life and our well-being. Absolutely. By the end of that course, Tony had prepared a certificate for me. I was preparing certificates for all the men after they finished the eight-week course. But on the last week, Tony came in with a rolled up, scrolled up thing that he had (laughs) hand art. It was hand art and handwritten. And it was a certificate that he had created for me. And I was graduating for putting up with 12 angry men for eight weeks. Wow. I love it. what, What a fabulous story. You know, and we're not going to have time to get into this whole thing, but one of the things that also made me want to interview you, Phyllis, is how aligned your message is with this show, Finding Your Bliss, because you talk about happiness and you devote a whole section to it. And I just want to ask you briefly if you can say something about intentional happiness. So intentional happiness is is really all about making choices. I, I think that there's a couple of, of levels and, and things that we can do to be happy intentionally. It's just making a choice. So when we wake up in the morning, we can say, what do we want to bring into our day? What do we want to bring into our day that's going to make us happy? For instance, I wake up this morning and I think to myself, I'm going to meet Judy. I'm going to have an interview. How exciting is that? And how much better does it get? And so the same thing applies when we go to bed at night. We can say, what's going on tomorrow? What did I do great today? What was happy about today? And what's going to be blissful about tomorrow? And when we go to bed with those thoughts in our minds, that's half of it. The other half, I believe, is the things that we do, the choices we make. We all know that we have a choice in everything, in every statement we make, in every action we take, in every word that we say to other people, as well as our treatment and attitude towards others. And I will tell you that if you want to experience bliss, this is in my heart and what I feel, for for true bliss, just be kind to others. It's just that simple because you get it back. 
that permeates the whole book is this kindness. What is the most important message you would love for people to extract from the prison lady, true stories and life lessons from both sides of the bars? In addition to what I've already said about kindness and intentional happiness, I want people to know that everyone deserves a second chance. I believe that prisoners are not six degrees of separation, but two degrees of separation. And that separation is the parents that we've had and how they treated us and how they raised us. Studies show not everyone was fortunate to be born into kindness and and nurturing. And I believe in second chances. Moreover, and more importantly, I believe that we could be doing better with our prisoners. I think that we could be better at rehabilitation, better at transitioning them back into society. There's so much more we could be doing. That's my message. What is bliss for Phyllis Taylor? What is bliss? Everything. Absolutely everything. (laughs) My family, which is two children. I have a girl and a boy. My two granddaughters who I could hardly wait to get my arms around at every opportunity. My amazing partner who is just allowing his world to to revolve around mine and supporting me on every level with all the craziness that I am and all that I do. He does. He does allow me and support me. And I'm loving, loving the journey of of being an author. Like whoever thought that would happen. I'm loving this new opportunity that I have. I have um, optioned my movie rights and that's just as exciting. And if I can learn anything, anytime from anyone, I am passionate about learning on a continuum. And all of these shows such as yours and others where we can learn and experience, take away something, that's my bliss. That's fantastic. I have to tell you, it's been an absolute delight. I, I think we could have talked for another two hours. It's it's just really terrific. I want to congratulate you on the book, Phyllis. What's the best way for people to contact you, to connect with you on social media, and to get a copy of your book, the book? prison lady? The book is um, available through Sutherland House Publishing. I I am with a traditional publisher. It's very easy to find my book on Amazon. And in addition, they can reach out to me through my social media page, which is Facebook, and they can, I'm Phyllis Taylor. Uh, I friend people all the time. And in addition, in my book is my email address, which I won't state here, but it is in my book and it's available to readers. And I get lots and lots of communication and I always return an email. Who would you like to play you in the movie? Are you ready to laugh? (laughs) So my producer is telling me that he is going to reach out to Bette Midler. However, (gasps) we do know, I know, I know it's shocking, but not shocking. And all of my friends are like, of course, and and say that before I say it, because if he just look at me, but the thing is, I don't look like her necessarily. I don't have her beauty, but I mean, I'm, you know, like the sparky thing. And my nickname is firecracker has been like, people name me firecracker at work, at the prison, my friends. And so there's that, but I mean, that doesn't mean she's going to, she's going to take the part. And Let's just please God get that far and then we'll make those decisions. <laughs> make those decisions. It's funny because I was laughing about your last name because I think you look a little bit like Elizabeth Taylor. I thought that right away when I first saw you on another show, which will not be named. <laughs> but I that's <laughs> that's what I thought. Anyway, it's that's been very so interesting. Delightful. I have an aunt who looked very much like Elizabeth Taylor. 
that's what I thought. I'm usually very good at uh, matching people up. I want to thank you again, Phyllis. It was wonderful. Each week we spotlight a fabulous person like Phyllis Taylor, who's living their bliss. So if you're really anyone who has found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you. Also, what did you love about today's program? Are there any guests or topics you'd like us to feature on Finding Your Bliss? Write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also a life coach. If I can help you in any way, let me know. You can reach out and contact me at findingyourbliss.com slash coaching. I'm also on Insight Timer, the number one free meditation app. And of course, you can always follow us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I would like to thank our wonderful guest, Phyllis Taylor, for being on the show today. Also, thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kiley, producer Olivia Weatherall, audio engineer Juliana Yanitsiello, senior editor Lauren Kaminsky, video editor Sierra Brown-Rodriguez, audio producer Baz Causey and everyone here at Zoomer, and of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.